Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Earlier this week, Palestinians marked 74 years since the Nakba. Nakba is the Arabic word for catastrophe, and it's how Palestinians describe what happened in 1948. This is when hundreds of thousands of them fled or were forced from their homes with the founding of Israel. Meanwhile, in a rural area of the occupied West Bank called Masafar Yatta, also known as the South Hebron Hills, Palestinians have been watching the Israeli army bulldozing their homes. Some of them are calling it the second Nakba. <laughs> This comes after the Israeli high court handed down a ruling in early May that could result in one of the biggest displacements of Palestinians in more than 50 years. Around a thousand people could be driven out of what they say is their land. My guest today is a Palestinian journalist who's been covering the ruling. His name is Basil Adra. This week, we're taking you to the West Bank to tell you the story of this decades-long legal battle and what's next for the people of Masafriyata. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Masafriyata is home to more than 2,000 people, and it's where freelance journalist Basil Adra grew up. Uh, I love the area of Masafriyata really in the, in the spring because it's a very nice landscape. It's very green, full of, of flowers. A lot of people come to enjoy the nature and hang out here. I remember in the summer with all of my friends and having a lot of fun. So Masafriyata is uh, over than 20 village, Palestinian village that exists here since centuries. Few hundreds in each community, in each village. Uh, people like uh, traditionally used to dig caves uh, in the ground and in the mountains and live in, inside it. Basil says a lot of families still live in these caves because they've been prevented from building homes by the Israeli army. People like uh, life here is simple. They are farmers who generally keep sheep, animal, and plant land and graze the sheep there and uh, have income from the sheep, the lambs and the cheese, yogurt. Uh, so yeah, this is how the livelihood of the of the community is here. So this area has been in contention for a long time. And if you want to understand what's happening right now, this is what you need to know. In 1993, the West Bank was divided into three areas, A, B, 
B, and C. Misafriyata is an Area C, which makes up about 60% of the West Bank, and it's under Israeli control. In the 1980s, the Israeli military declared that Misafriyata was a firing zone for military training, meaning that no one could live there. But residents were left alone until 1999. That's when the Israeli army issued an expulsion order and evicted around 700 people. But a lot of these people came back thanks to an interim injunction. That injunction allowed them to keep living on the land as this case made its way through the courts until a final decision was reached. That decision just came down and it paves the way for the eviction of about a thousand Palestinians. According to multiple news outlets and human rights organizations, this could be one of the biggest expulsions since Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories began in 1967. And we'll talk more about that decision in a second, but these were the conditions in Masafriyata when Basil was growing up. My life is totally under the Israeli occupation army rules. They're controlling everything about our life. Like if I turn to exiting from my community toward the city or other communities, I would have flying checkpoint of soldiers stopping in the, in, in the entrance and checking everyone, body and car. Few hundreds meters away, there is a settlement and outpost that were built on our land and expanding every day under our eyes, building more homes, structures for the settlers, roads, water on our land while we are prevented. Basil is talking about Jewish settlements that have been built in the area since 1967. There are around 130 of them scattered throughout the occupied West Bank. Israel claims religious and historical rights to the West Bank, and many settlers move there because they see the area as the ancestral land of Jewish people. Up into the hills of much of the occupied West Bank, there are illegal settlements, block after block, These are home to more than 600,000 Israeli settlers on Palestinian land. So these settlements are illegal, according to Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention. And multiple UN resolutions have said that they violate international law. But earlier this week, a military planning body approved another 4,000 settler homes and other places in the West Bank. And Prime Minister Naftali Bennett characterized the expansion as a response to recent Palestinian violence. Palestinians view these settlements as an obstacle to peace. I've been witnessing the settlers going, chasing the shepherd. My father was one of them. This when I was like a child. And then I grew up and they became chased by the settlers and even I got attacked and beaten up. Journalists and human rights groups have been documenting settler violence in the area for years. In 2020, Israeli human rights group B'Tselem reported 641 incidents, including 193 cases of physical assault. And Palestinians say in recent months there has been a rise in settler attacks in the West Bank. Hundreds of Israeli and Palestinian peace activists planted olive trees in the West Bank hills between the Palestinian village of Burin and several Israeli settlements. They protested what they say is the rising wave of violent attacks by extremist Jewish settlers. I grew up witnessing that army raiding our homes in the night. In the day, they come with bulldozer and demolish it. If we go out with the sheep, settlers come and chase us and beat up the sheep and beating, beating us as well. 
Before this court rule, even the army were making our life as miserable as they can, slowly uh, evacuating by demolishing homes, schools, clinics, expanding settlements and outposts. So we live in fear and without any structures. If we build homes, they come and demolish it, cutting water supply and electricity, damaging our roads. So we don't have a good life, a simple life in our communities, in our homes, so we live away. Basil explains that even though the injunction allowed the Palestinians to keep living on the land, they weren't technically allowed to build anything new on it. Besides everything we built, home, school, sheep shelter, a bathroom, a water pipe, uh, trying to create a road, they come and damage it and saying you don't have permission and you can't build anything in the firing zone. Yeah. Okay, so so let's talk about what's happening right now. So on May 4th, the Israeli high court rejected a petition from uh, some families. This affects eight villages with about a thousand people, including around 500 children. So what's been happening since this ruling came down? What have you been seeing? There was like a big demolition last Wednesday. One of the biggest demolitions that happened in front of my eyes. 20 structures were whipped out, 10 of them were living rooms. This was very big demolition. And when the family, the people asked the army, why are you demolishing it? They're telling them it's done. Now there's a court ruling, you can't build here, you can't stay here, uh, and we're gonna continue with this. So also we did a demonstration against it. The army created so many checkpoints uh, in the area of South Hebron Hills. Around 400 people didn't manage to arrive to Masafriyata due to the checkpoints that the police and the Israeli soldiers create on the highway. And two people got injured, one of them seriously injured in the face from the settlers' attacks. Uh, there are videos, settlers throwing stones. and attacking the protesters while the soldiers were standing beside and not arrest any of them. Also, the people feeling really afraid of the army coming and bringing trucks and taking them away because it's already happened in 1999. They say to me, we don't know if they're going to leave us even physically here in our land. We don't know if tomorrow morning we'll wake up and find ourselves in the military trucks with our animals and we don't know in the next few days and weeks what's going to happen. I, I saw some videos on your Twitter feed where families are taking all of their things out of their homes and dumping them on the ground. Look at what they did. Look. Look, it's a life. People have soaps here and their bags. And, and then watching their homes being demolished. Where are these people going once they're evicted? So sometimes they go sit with other relatives in the community and neighbors. Sometimes, as, as I said, the people have caves, old caves. They go back and live in, in them. And one of the families, for example, took out a tent of, the sh- of their sheep and set it up and like built it and slept inside it. International human rights organizations have condemned the May 4th ruling from the Israeli High Court. 
but it's also been criticized by some legal experts inside Israel. One of them is human rights lawyer Michael Svard. He wasn't involved in this case, but he's worked on a number of land use cases related to Israel's occupation of the West Bank. Well, I think consensus in the legal profession is uh, something that never happens. But what I can say is, with much pride, is that there was a a public uh, statement made by international law professors in Israeli universities and colleges, which criticized the decision, uh, stating that uh, it uh, failed to implement international law and made gross uh, uh, mistakes in interpreting it and uh, in failing to implement it. Can you recap for me what the ruling from May 4th said? Um, why did the court reject the petition from these families? What it said basically is that these people do not belong to these areas, that they are not residents of the South uh, Hebron Hills. And that was done according to the uh, standards of military law that applies to the West Bank entirely because it is an occupied territory occupied by Israel in 1967. Uh, It dismissed the argument that military law is subject and inferior to international law and that according to the basic norms and fundamental norms of international laws of occupation, the occupying power, namely Israel, is not allowed to forcibly transfer communities, even individuals, from where they reside. According to international law, herder communities, seasonal residents, they are all residents of the area and have a right to continue living there, and the occupier is not allowed uh, to evict them. What more, the petitioners held that the occupying power has no right to designate part of the occupied territory as a training area. This is something that the occupying power or the occupying army has to do within the borders of sovereign Israel, not in the occupied territory. So all of these arguments were dismissed. The ruling rejected this idea that these Palestinian families were permanent residents of the area, right? Can you tell me a bit about that and what kind of evidence did the Palestinian families show in court to prove that they'd been living there and and were permanent residents and on what basis did the court reject that? Yeah, I mean, the court rejected really a barrage of evidence presented by the petitioners, including aerial photos from different years in the past decades showing their presence, showing that lands were cultivated. There were tents, there were small uh, huts, there were uh, wo- uh, wooden and, uh, and, and stone structures that they built throughout the years. Um, the petitioners also brought um, very uh, 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 damning uh, uh, documents from the Israeli archives. Uh, which were uncovered by Akevot, a think tank and a research group, um, according to which the designation of these areas as military zones uh, was decided with the uh, uh, motivation of uh, not not allowing Palestinian presence in these areas. So it's not for training, it's not for, uh, you know, firing zone. The, the, The designation was done in order to Uh, uh, facilitate the deportation of these uh, communities. 
In the verdict, Justice David Mintz wrote that the question of whether this was an area of permanent residence wasn't complicated at all, that the aerial footage from before the 1980s showed no signs of a residential presence. Now, the uh, judges have uh, implemented a standard uh, that is completely cultural biased, which deals with permanent residency in the sense this term has in Western culture. So I read that um, even before the ruling, and Basil, our other guest, was telling us this too, demolitions and, and confiscations were pretty much part of everyday life for a lot of these residents. So how does this ruling actually change things? What, what's the significance of it? Well, the the demolitions that were based on the premise that the injunction issued by the court in 2000, which allowed the deportees to come back and the communities to continue living in this area, prohibited them from building more, so from expanding the structures that already were there. Now, when, when such a freeze on construction is done for several weeks, maybe several months, that's uh, something that is bearable. But when such freeze is imposed for decades, uh, that is something that the community cannot uh, sustain because people, you know, there are children being born, families get married, and and there's increase in the number of individuals who live in the communities. If the ruling is not reversed, um, then uh, the uh, civil administration, which uh, manages the, the civilian affairs of the occupied territory, is now empowered to demolish everything, including structures that were built before 2000. Mm. And more so, they are allowed to evacuate forcibly to transfer these people, to actually take them away from this area, put them on buses, and take them uh, uh, to a a remote area. This is something that they were not allowed uh, before. This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms in country towns. This should not be here. It's a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, Six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. So this has been playing out in the courts for two decades now. Why has it been such a long process and and why has a decision come down now? Well, of course, I'm not privy to the what is said uh, behind the scenes uh, between the judges, but I think past benches of the Israeli Supreme Court were reluctant both to allow uh, such massive force transfer and were also uh, concerned with a decision that would prohibit the government from carrying out a central piece of its West Bank policy. So when the court is uh, in such a corner, many times the court just drags the case. Um, But it's also the state. Past governments were reluctant to follow through. 
in the last decade, we had some of our most right-wing nationalistic governments in Israel, and they have been pushing a decision in this case. And also the Israeli Supreme Court composition uh, completely altered in recent years. A generational uh, change uh, occurred, and uh, many of the new judges, including two of the three that uh, ruled this case, uh, have been uh, appointed by the most right-wing government in Israel. And so I think that is at least part of the explanation of why and why now. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm also just wondering, what is the significance of this piece of land and why has Israel been trying to get Palestinians off of it for so many years? For fair disclosure, I've written a, a report charging Israel uh, with committing the crime of apartheid in the West Bank on behalf of uh, an Israeli human rights organization called Yesh Din. And what we saw in our uh, very uh, intimate and uh, extensive documentation of Israeli practices and policies is that uh, the Israeli government uh, is trying to push the Palestinians into their build-up areas, into their uh, metropolitan areas. And wherever we have a um, scarcely populated area, and that means uh, at least three main areas within the West Bank. That's the Jordan Valley, uh, the Jerusalem Envelope, and South Hebron Hills. In these areas, this is seen as areas for future expansion of settlements. And South Hebron Hills is really a big area that is very scarcely populated by small hamlets, small communities, sometimes of two or three families. And uh, evacuating these areas would enable a lot of uh, development of Jewish settlements. Yesh Din isn't the only organization that's accused Israel of apartheid. Reports from the prominent Israeli human rights group B'Tselem, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and a report prepared for the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights have all made the same allegation. The Israeli government completely rejects this. Earlier this year, Israel's representative to the UN said that the groups had launched a, quote, jihad war against the only vibrant democracy in the Middle East, that they were working with Palestinians to delegitimize Israel as a Jewish democratic state. He asked how anyone could say that Israel was guilty of systemic injustice when there were Arabs serving as doctors, MPs and ministers. In March, Israel's ambassador to the UN and international organizations in Geneva told the Jerusalem Post that any report that doesn't consider, quote, security challenges and threats faced daily by all Israelis, including the danger from Hamas and Gaza, can't be taken seriously. We reached out to the IDF, Israel's Ministry of Defense, and the Coordinator of Government Activity in the Territory for comment. We asked them for comment on the court decision and to respond to criticisms that the evictions would be a breach of international law. We did not hear back. A lot of these families in Masafriyata, they're determined to stay in their homes. They've been demonstrating, but we're already seeing demolitions and reports of attacks from settlers. So where do you see this going? I know that the Association for Civil Rights in Israel is planning to file a motion for a further hearing in a wider tribunal. Now, of all motions that are filed for a further hearing, only about 3% are granted. So we're not yet in a situation where this ruling is completely final. 
until a decision on the motion is granted. Now, if it will be final, I don't know, of course. I don't know what the government is planning. But my assessment is that as far as they can, they would play it slow and allow for the evacuation to be done by means of driving the people out rather than forcibly removing them physically. What we will see is not a uh, column of trucks and soldiers forcibly removing uh, individuals. What we will see is that all the kinds of uh, demolitions, uh, filing of indictments, all, all kinds of and sorts of things, making their life miserable until they want to leave. We will see the, the army demolishing cisterns and uh, wells, destroying electricity, uh, solar electricity panels, not allowing farmers to cultivate lands. We will see all kinds of disruptions to their daily life in order to compel them to leave rather than to to forcibly remove them. However, in areas where there are small communities, maybe of two or three families, which are needed, quote unquote, for a new neighborhood, for a nearby settlement. So there might be these kind of small cases in which actual evacuation will take place. These are the kind of things that the world cannot allow. So tensions have been rising in the West Bank for months, but the situation escalated last week when news broke that beloved Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akleh had been killed in the city of Jenin. She was shot dead covering a raid by the Israeli Defense Forces. Shireen Abu Akleh was one of the best-known voices to Palestinians. Now in death, a national symbol. The Palestinian Authority and witnesses say that it was the Israeli army that did it. Israel initially said that Palestinian militants were likely to blame. And according to Israeli media, the military is not planning to investigate the killing. Shireen Abu Akleh's last report for Al Jazeera was filmed just a couple of days before her death. She covered the 74th anniversary of the Nakba. She interviewed a survivor and he walked her through the village where he used to live. He still remembers the map of the village, the houses and the wells that used to be there. In the second half of the story, she turned to the present. She said some are still afraid of a repeat of the Nakba. I've been in this area nine times, and they have destroyed it. We were like really shocked from the killing of Shirin Abakli. Like everyone were in shock about that. She were like in every single place, I think, in, in West Bank, especially like in Masafriyata, she she came few times to cover reports about the uh, demolitions and the settlers' violence and the things like that going on in the area. It was very sad day in all Palestine and very black day. A few days earlier, Basil says he himself was attacked by Israeli forces. I, they come to remove a, a shelter for our neighbor, like a few hundred meters away from my home. It was like two car of soldiers who came there. I went to, to, film, to film them uh, what they are doing. And the commander were telling the soldiers, any Palestinian like cross this line, like come close to this shelter, just arrest him. 
I asked him in only twice, like if you have an order for that. And just because I asked him twice about this, the same question, where is the order? He asked them to to grab me and put me in the in the military car. So they put me, they grabbed me on the ground, beating me up with their like hands and guns by kicking me and in my stomach and grab me on the ground. What are you doing? We reached out to Israel's Ministry of Defense and the coordinator of government activity in the territories for comment about Basil's case. We didn't hear back, but in a statement to the independent magazine 972, an IDF spokesperson said that their soldiers were responding to reports of illegal construction and that 30 Palestinians had started a riot in the area. They also said that the case was being looked into. I was resisting and refusing what they are doing because uh, there was no legal excuse for them to do that. It's only because I'm activist and journalist here on the ground, taping and writing about what they are doing. So they, they wanted really just to, to, to punish me. That's really scary. Do these things ever make you think, maybe I don't want to do this kind of work? I think a lot about, about like of what I'm doing and how much it's, it's dangerous. But in, in the end, I think that this is the occupation uh, we need to face and to resist. And everyone is affected. Like people can, people are victims of the occupation while not, they are not activists, not journalists. But you know, I can be shot just an accident passing in a checkpoint or something and they claim every, everything, like anything they want to claim about me. So I choose to, to resist and to face it to, in order to end this, uh, this suffering. And that's all for this week. You've been listening to Nothing is Foreign. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta. Our sound designer is Graham McDonald. And our showrunner is Adrian Chung. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer. And Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode and you want to help new listeners find the show, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening. And I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.